You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. This is Sirius XM Patriot. This is Sirius XM Patriot. 125. David Webb Show presents Patriot Forum with Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears. Sirius XM Patriot 125. You've met the candidate met the lieutenant governor but first i'd like the patriot audience to meet winsome sears the woman elected to a majority black legislative district something no other republican had done since 1865 and that's where a big part of her american journey is prior to that she served in the marine corps she is an immigrant from the island of jamaica a great place to be in the caribbean And I'd really like to start with your journey, Winsome, because while many have met the candidate and the lieutenant governor, I think I want to hear from the woman who has really evolved into this position. So let's start with the immigrant from Jamaica, the young girl coming to America. There's the journey. My journey is no different than any other immigrant who came to America. And in fact, it's no different than the the people who are coming in through the southern border, but they're coming in illegally. I had to get in line along with my dad. And so I think it's always best. You can't violate the laws of the land before you're even there. You have to do what the country you're trying to uh, be accepted into tells you. So my father came. um, I guess I'll just tell the, the quick story. My father came to America at the height of the civil rights movement, just 17 days before Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. And, you know, you consider that my father is a black man and yet he knew what was going on in America, but he still wanted to come. In fact, he filed the paperwork, got the background check, did everything that he was asked to do and waited his turn until the country, America finally said, okay, you can enter. And when he came, Again, I asked him, why did you come then? Because things were bad for us. He said, because this is where the jobs were. This is where the opportunities were. And you know what he didn't do, David, when he came here and saw how it was? He did not go home. No, sir. In fact, six years later, he came back and got me after he had stabilized himself. And I tell you all that to say that America is still fulfilling dreams. but yesterday I was thinking something through and a couple days ago, I was in a sort of an antique store and there was a Pan Am airplane, a 744. Now I came on a Pan Am 737. No, no. Yeah. 737. I think it was. And, and I saw it and I thought I'm going to get this for my dad, but my daughter who was born in America, she said to me now she's first generation American, right? I'm still the immigrant. My father is the immigrant and I am the immigrant. She's first generation. And she said to me, no, mom, you keep this. 
this is for you. Because I was going to surprise him with it for Father's Day. And I thought, now, America describes herself as the city on a shining hill, as the land of milk and honey, as the promised land. That's how America describes herself. And I said, for me, it was. And for so many other people trying to get in, it was. And my ship was that Pan American airplane. But then why doesn't it succeed for some of the people who were born here? They were born into the promised land. And then I thought, well, it's just like the biblical promised land. What are you going to do once you get there? That's the question. And so once my father got here, what did he do with the $1.75 that he came with in his pocket? He took any job he could find and he put himself through school and started his career. Education was the ship that, that, you know, that he used once he arrived in the promised land so that it would truly be the promised land. And that's what I want to say to native born that you're already in the promised land and the opportunities are already here. And I believe it starts with a good education because that's what got my father out of poverty. And that's what pulled me out of poverty. You know, we share the land of our birth, Jamaica. And until now, I didn't realize how similar our paths were. For me, it was my mother who came here first, got herself settled in. And, you know, back then you couldn't bring much money with you into the country. She did it legally came here, stabilized, and then years later, I went back and forth occasionally, but years later, the final journey, the legal path for me as her son was to come here. And it's so important that immigrants like us and others share their stories of their journey because I think that's an enhancing factor to who we are as a country, that we welcome mm-hmm. from anywhere in the world as long as you do it right. I didn't know till now that there was a very similar track, I think probably in years. We're pretty close as far as the time it took. But when your dad came here and, and he settled himself in and he brought you here, I want to hear your first experience. You came on Pan Am. I came on Eastern Airlines. I remember that flight still to this day. And, and, you know, I remember those first impressions, real impressions of being in America. What was your real impression? Well, I was six years old and my first flight, you know, was out of the country. When I landed, it was cold, snow, (laughs) and the different smells, uh, the people were speaking English, but not the English I was used to, you know, with I the know, British I accent. Know, I know. <laughs> the music was different. The foods are different. It, it was traumatic. And then remember, we're coming from sunshine and, uh, and wide open spaces. And what happens? He takes me to the Bronx in an apartment, six floors up behind five different six different locks i'm not used to that you know i'm used to the doors are open the windows are open everybody you know and and traumatic but here i am you know i'm i'm having flashbacks in a good way i I really am (laughs) and i'm sure many other people who will 
listen and see this will have those moments. They'll remember that first moment, that first impression. And from six years on, as we're as young kids, we're starting to form those years. I came a little bit later for the more permanent, you know, for the permanent stay. But to you and your next experiences, I, I like the part about the English, but not the English we grew up with, right? The the proper English, the Queen's English, yes. as it used to be called, yes. uh, because in Jamaican schools, you learned not Patois, but you learned proper English. Yeah. And here we're making those adjustments. Yes. Here, here we're making those adjustments. Now, let's talk about the young woman, Winsome Sears. And eventually that led you on a path to the Marine Corps. So how did that happen? Well, um, you know, my father had decided that I wasn't learning very much in school in America. And so he sent me back. He sent me back to a third world country for school. And, uh, you know, we had the common entrance exams at the time. And Anyway, uh, when I got back, I had been in the third grade in America, but when I returned, they put me in the first grade. I was the tallest kid in class because I didn't know anything. They were spelling accomplishment, for example, in school in Jamaica in the third grade. And we were spelling where and when and this and why in America. So yeah, they put me back and um, they intensive learning. And by the way, it wasn't a prep school. In fact, my first three or so, six months when I first returned to Jamaica, uh, it was a prep school. And my father said, no, he's not paying for a prep school. That public school was good enough for him. And that's where I went. I went to public school and the ghetto, by the way. And, um, and, and it didn't matter if you were in the ghetto or if you were in middle class or whatever, you got a good education. You just did. Uh, it's it's a different educational system. You know, it's the British system in Jamaica. And uh, so I, I was able to catch up to the point where I even was ahead, a year ahead. But, uh, and then, you know, I told my, after I passed um, the national exam that allows you to enter high school in Jamaica, I, um, I spent like two, I was in second form, at Arden High School and I told my dad, I wanna come back now full time because you know, I had been coming up for the summers and going back and coming up and going back. And I just said, I wanna come, you know, and he said, okay. And when I came, the funny part about it is I brought my transcripts from high school. Cause you know, in Jamaica, high school starts in the seventh grade. And I already had, by the time I was in the eighth grade I had already done bio, chemistry and physics. Well, when the teachers in New York saw my transcripts, they saw it. They said this was general science. I said, no, this is actually biology, chemistry, and physics. They put me back again. Well, guess what? I aced everything because I had already had it. So, in fact, the education system was better after all. And I remember that there were so many American children and English children and Canadian children who were in my classes in Jamaica because their parents paid for them to come to school there. So, and then, uh, you know, my grandmother died, which is your original question, because when she died, I felt that my life was no longer uh, worth anything. And if you're just gonna, I looked at her in the casket and I thought, if you're just gonna 
die, then what is the purpose of living? And so I told my mother when I went back to Jamaica for the funeral, I said, you know, I'm just going to stay here and die. And she said, well, if you're going to stay here and die, I've got rules. And she started telling me, <laughs> you're going to come in by a certain time. You're going to do this. You're gonna... She knew what to say. And, and so I said to myself, I'm going back to America because nobody tells me what to do. I was 18, you know, 17, 18. And she, uh, and, but, but then she had an Ebony magazine, no, Jet magazine on her coffee table of all things. And I flipped it open and there it said the few, the proud, the Marines. I said, that's it. I'm going to go back and join the Marines. They're going to give me a reason to live. And they gave me several reasons to live. They gave me the discipline that I needed at that time. They really saved my life because I really, I had nothing. I, I was supposed to start college August and I had everything planned out, um, but she died. My grandmother died that July. And so I knew I couldn't go to college. I was not going to make it. But the Marines yeah. gave me the discipline. What was your father's response or reaction when you said you're joining the Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah. Um, why would she, why would you do that? You know, he was telling everybody else, what, why the Marines and why does she think she could do it? And, and it, it wasn't just him, it was the whole family because nobody else had joined any military. And so then here I am the first to break out of my generation and I'm a woman at that, you know, and, and so after I did, then other people did too. Other people put off college and decided to join different services. My one cousin also joined about maybe a year after I did. So yeah, they were all in shock, but I don't know why they, they raised me to succeed. <laughs> they did not raise me to be a failure. I was expected. I mean, I was expected to succeed. I did not come home with C's and whatever else. Are you kidding? No. Yeah, if I came home you with C's, it... I went back to school. And, that's, and that was in the evening. That, that actually did happen to me. I can relate to the physics and the bio or the biology and the other courses. So you joined the Marine Corps. Here you are. And now you're looking to your post-service, uh, you know, always a Marine, but civilian service. And you become a businesswoman as well. You move on to other things and into political office. That journey, what guided you? Was it the Marine Corps? You're a licensed electrician. I mean, you're doing things that aren't typically thought that you should be doing. Well, I guess it was in my upbringing that, as I said, you know, I was not raised to be a failure. I could not be a failure. I had to succeed. It was expected of me that I would succeed. Uh, no parent doesn't expect their child to succeed. So I couldn't come home a failure. That would not ever work. And I had to make something of myself. I mean, I came from a father who came to America with $1.75. What was I going to tell him? That, uh, well, you know, Black people, you know, victims and Black people were victims. And, 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 no, it's not going to work. So that's why um, I just always figured, and I was always raised to believe that I could do whatever I set my mind to. And so if I walk into a room, I belong in that room. Even if, and, and it was so bad, let me tell you. Uh, 
one of my daughters had tested and she thought that she should be on the gifted program bus. And she was what in the first grade, she got on the bus. She took herself on the bus. Apparently I had trained her by the time she was in the first grade to understand you belong wherever you think you belong. So <laughs> she got on the bus, but that's how we were raised, you see. So it was expected that I would make it somehow. Let's take a pause. My guest, Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Winsome Sears. This is Patriot Forum with Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, hosted by David Webb on Sirius XM Patriot 125. Speaking with Winsome Sears, Lieutenant Governor from the state of Virginia, you know, I mentioned earlier that you were first elected in an all-black or majority black district. So let's fast forward a little bit, Winsome, to your political aspirations, the work, the work you've done for veterans. You know, and I like this because it's, it's a guiding conversation to who you are to take us to where you are now as the lieutenant governor of Virginia. But, you know, those days working for veterans in elected office, moving into your next level of service. I, I did a lot during that time, but uh, part of what I did was, um, was, was to look at who could be helped because I saw that modeled for me. I, you know, my grandmother in Jamaica, she was buying shoes and whatever else to take back from America to Jamaica to those who couldn't afford it. Um, she would feed people, my mother and everybody would feed people. And uh, so here I was, you know, uh, doing prison ministry for men. And also I was a VISTA volunteer to help adults learn how to read. And, and you know, and I, I did some other things. I, I was a homeless shelter director for women. So it, it, it was just something that you do. It's, and, and that's, I'm, I'm not special in that. People look around to see who needs help. And, you know, Mother Teresa told us, you can't help a hundred, but you can help one. So help one. And, and that's what I tried to do. Well, now you're helping so many uh, running for lieutenant governor, stepping into a very big position with initiatives that help the, not only the citizens of Virginia, but set an example. Virginia's been an amazing story for the Republican Party. And, you know, we just went through a period where the, the Republican Party was honoring blacks in the Republican Party. Part of our legacy, our starting point in 1854. We have the facts. We have the history. We have the success and not success for blacks, but success for America as a party. And in this position where you are right now, what are the key initiatives for you to not only demonstrate to all Virginians that this is how we govern effectively, but how we can help them make the right choices uh, politically, socially, culturally, and otherwise? Wherever I go, I first want to talk with the children because the children are our future. So I recently heard about the greeting of the Maasai tribe in Africa. And, you know, they when they go to each other's villages, this is the way they greet each other. And how are the children? That's the first thing out of their mouths. And how are the children? Are the children well? Because 
a tribe without a ch without children is a dying tribe and that's how we are in america if our children don't succeed they're going to die and we see it happening all the time we see it with the crime in our neighborhoods we see it when uh, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said to rob a man of his uh, living is to rob a man of his dignity. Uh, I think it was he who said that. I'm going to have to look that up. But we, we have to ensure that our children have a hope and a future. Uh, people without a hope, again, they don't thrive. They die. So I am trying to say to my fellow Americans, and especially those of us who look like us. And I'm hoping that the Latino population and the Asian population don't allow themselves to be preempted uh, to think that there are some Blacks or some Asians or some Latinos who are better than their, you know, their group. And so they get to dictate what politically uh, people are supposed to vote about and who. So, I want people to understand that they have to look at the issues for themselves. Don't just look at somebody who says they're a Democrat and vote for them and, and vice versa. Don't just look at somebody who says they're Republican and vote vice versa. Vote for the person you think is best suited to what you're trying to accomplish in your life. And I think most of the time, if they think about it that way, they will, they will generally vote Republican because we are trying to ensure in, in Virginia and in America that businesses succeed. We are trying to ensure less regulation, less government involvement, less taxation on that business so that the business can expand, uh, can, can uh, of course get more profits so that it can hire more people, create jobs, et cetera, et cetera. That's what people want to do. In fact, that's what the drug dealers want to do. You know, we ought that they have a mind. We need to harness their mind, get them into entrepreneurship programs that will work for them, their families, their communities. So that's the one thing. Uh, tax policy, personally, not business, but now personally, I need to keep as much of my money that I work for as possible. And I think a lot of black people, Asian people, whatever kind of American people, people. <laughs> American people, they believe the same thing. They worked hard for that money. I deserve to keep as much of it as possible. Don't be kind on my dime. You understand? That's what, you know, that there we have family, you know, we all have family who will borrow money and we know if we give it, we're not going to get it back. You can just kiss it goodbye. So we know who to lend to, right? Because we'll get it back. The government doesn't know that, so they just take our money and give it willy-nilly. No, the Bible says if a man who is able-bodied doesn't work, then he doesn't eat. Because what the government is now doing is helping that man to be a failure. We don't want that. We want him to succeed. We want him to thrive for his family, for himself. And then, of course, we need an educated workforce because, David, we are not on this planet by ourselves. You see what's happening, for example, in, in Ukraine. Oh, by the way, by the way, now we know that borders are important, don't we, David? <laughs> yes, yes, we do. 
We are fighting for the Ukraine people, Ukrainian people to keep their border. But what about our southern border? Why aren't we fighting for that border? We don't know who's coming in. We've got the new COVID uh, uh, variant and yet people are just being let all the way through the country. We've got drugs coming from the border, the fentanyl coming from China through that border, killing us. And nobody seems to care. So we just want to say to all Americans, black, white, whatever color you are, don't let anybody make your decisions for you. Whatever you want to be, be that. And by the way, don't force me to vote your way. This is America. This is another reason why we came here. This is freedom. You know, one of the things I like to say, Winsome, is, you know, they want you to vote, especially the Democrats, but political parties want you to vote for their power, not yours. And the Mm -hmm. individual rights that are protected under the Constitution, the culture, our cultural DNA in the Declaration, it's a promise and a process that you managed to take and convey during the election cycle. I got a lot of feedback on calls from people in rural Virginia and other areas where typically Republicans kind of took it for granted. You went out there. I talked to you at one point when you were either on a bus or in a car or somewhere. I remember getting cut off during the interview. But carrying that message out is not about a particular ethnicity, as you just described. We're all Americans. And where we succeed, we're interconnected. Among your initiatives, you know, education is such a big part of it. Parental rights. These are important parts of building a foundation based on your experience, my experience, many Americans' experience. And there's still concerns in Virginia that the hardcore left is coming back with the the false equity, the the new racism Mm -hmm. that they're coming back with, you know, critical race theory and other components and teaching this, even if it's not in the curriculum, from the governor's mansion and the lieutenant governor's seat, if you will, where you are both there, you and Governor Youngking, how do you fight back against this? We establish relationships. That's what we do. We speak to the people. We get right past the gatekeepers. We go into the communities. We, we speak to whoever will have us. Um, wherever uh, pe- we are invited, we go. If we're not invited, we ask. And you will find that a lot of the times the people don't know how their leaders, their political leaders are voting. They assume that they're doing the right thing by them. And there's a total disconnect, David. As you know, in the black community, for example, we really are the most conservative thinking people, but we don't vote that way. And it's because we don't have as Republican those relationships that we need to. And the uh, Latino community as well, the Asian community as well, the immigrant community as well. We don't have those relationships. So we're going out and getting among everybody, uh, rubbing shoulders, listening, um, finding out what the folks want to have happen. We're, we're, we're being held accountable. And I think when you form relationships, then you come to understanding. And you know, you may not agree with the the the, the Republican Party, let's say, a hundred percent of the time. Maybe it's eighty percent of the time, but that should be good enough. 
the other 20, you know, we can argue about, but the 80 is good enough. And that's what we need to do. And that's how we're getting to the hearts and minds of the people. And I got to tell you, there are times when I'm standing on the rostrum in the Senate and I can see uh, a person up in the gallery and they're looking at me. And I've even had little girls who wink at me and I'll wink back to say, yes, you can be here too. It is not impossible. I didn't do anything special except stay in school and study, had no political connections, had no money, nothing like that, except the will to want to help. So, yeah. You know, I'm just, I love listening to this because, and listening to you rather, because we have such an advantage now. And I think we have a responsibility as well. My platform as a black man, your platform as Lieutenant Governor and also a black woman, the ability to disarm people and disarm the traditional Democrat voters out there to say to them, hang on, I'm here facing you. Why don't we engage with each other? The point about you know agreeing on 80 percent, Ronald Reagan said it. My 80 percent friend is not my 20 percent enemy. Americans mm-hmm. are more aligned than ever. But, you know, I feel that responsibility of being able to go into non quote non-traditional. They shouldn't be, but non-traditional areas for Republicans and disarm people by simply showing up. And, and I think that's a lesson all Americans, no matter what your color of skin is, should take to heart. Yeah, I mean, showing up, as they say, is half of life, you know. Um, You've got to be in it, as they say, to win it, you know. So show up, show up and, and, you know, put put your best foot forward. I'm meeting with a a group of uh, formerly incarcerated people and we call them returning citizens. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how can we stop this cycle? And I don't want to recreate the wheel. But do you know, they say to me, nobody else has come to us. Nobody else. But wait a minute. I thought that the other side of the political equation said that they love people who have been incarcerated more than Republicans. What's up with that, as we say, you see? So I am there, I wanna help. I don't want the cycle to continue. And by the way, we don't have a parole board and we don't have a parole board because the Democrats, unfortunately in the Senate, they still control the Senate, they played games. And they put forward people that the governor had not yet put forward. And they said the reason they did it was to teach the House Republicans a lesson. And they were going to use these people's lives in order to vote them down off the parole board to teach the House Republicans a lesson. And now we don't have a parole board as a result. And so those people who rightfully deserve parole that, you know, they did the crime, they did the time. We want them now to be upstanding citizens. You know, you're out, you're contributing to society. They can't because the Democrats are playing with their lives. So again, this is the nonsense. And as I said before, people don't know uh, what their uh, senators and delegates are doing and they assume they're working for them, but no, no. They're busy teaching people lessons and using other people's lives to do it. You know what you said earlier about if you help one person, what Mother Teresa said, 
Conversely, if you hurt one person, you hurt so many others, whether it's the families of someone who's, like you said, did the crime, did their time, deserves Mm -hmm. a second chance at life. And, you know, we also have to reconnect society. Too often, uh, demagoguery becomes a part of it for the Democrats. Billionaires this, millionaires this, women this, men this, black. They, they play the game of putting people in boxes. And we've got to it's break vis- that demagoguery. Vis- mm-hmm. It's divisiveness. And if they can divide and conquer, then that's what happens. But who wants to live like that? You know, if you don't agree with me, okay, fine. You know, vote some other way. Vote for somebody else. But don't stand in the way of other people and don't call them names and don't do this and that. And it only serves your purpose. It gives you power. It doesn't really give the voter any power because you don't really care anyway. And if you do, okay, fine. But you don't have to destroy me in order to get elected. I just don't understand that because, you know, I'm not running after the next election. Uh, you know, uh, in, in, in other words, I, whether I win or not is not so much important to me as I keep my good name. That's what I'm after. But other people, you know, they've got to win the next election. And so after that, they, they just, you know, they'll do whatever. Be very afraid of those kind of people. We'll pause in my conversation with Winsome Sears, Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. This is Patriot Forum with Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, hosted by David Webb on Sirius XM Patriot 125. Back now with my guest, uh, the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Winsome Sears. Well, whether you're at the pulpit or at the podium, (laughs) whether you're out there on a street corner talking to a citizen uh, or in a car driving through rural Virginia or even in the bigger areas, you've demonstrated your ability to make that connection. And I think we're seeing such a seed change in Virginia that leaders like you are needed. The the governor, you, the attorney general, the, the staff, the efforts you're putting together, all Virginians will benefit from good policy and, you know, maybe those Democrats, a few of them will turn around and say, uh, I've been doing something wrong all along. I'm hoping they do. But if not, remember, you're a Marine. You defeat them. Then you set the terms. You know, I, I was just thinking about how we don't trust our political leaders anymore. And, I, for example, Jen Psaki has been up at the podium speaking on behalf of our president And she says, she's being very disingenuous in what she says. For example, when she's asked about um, the price of gas and how the president had a hand in making it that high, she says, well, there are 9,000 oil and gas leases that have already been permitted. But if these oil companies would use those oil and gas leases, then oil wouldn't be so high except that she doesn't tell you the other side of the story, which is that number one, they don't know if there's oil or gas under the ground. That's number one, they still have to drill for it. But number two, this administration has made drilling and the regulation of it so onerous that there is almost no way to drill. 
because guess what you're going to need, David? A pipeline if you find oil or gas. And we know about the president and his pipelines, right? Right. He's stopping all of that. So this is what I mean. If you have a country where you don't know whom to trust or what to trust, my God, that's not a healthy country. Well, I'll tell you, I remember something you said, and I'm just reminded of that. Uh, my thought is, boy, I would, I wish I lived in Virginia. I'm in the free state of Florida. You made a joke about that the last time we saw it. <laughs> hey, stop moving to Florida. We're doing okay in Virginia now. And, yeah. and I think just from hearing this and seeing the successes and, and the continued work that that the, the party that you are doing as the lieutenant governor, uh, I think you might get a few more people moving to Virginia. So some of my relatives may not be leaving after all. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was raised in, in, in Jamaica in, in part, and I have seen what propaganda looks like. And you have too, because you came up at the same time, I'm sure that I did. And that was when Castro came over with Russian money to Jamaica, which Cuba is only, what, 90 miles away. And uh, Jamaicans have been going to Cuba forever and vice versa. But this time they came with Russian money and we had a, uh, a prime minister who called himself a socialist Democrat. And, you know, we've heard that term in America before. Oh, yes, yeah. AOC and her ilk. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and, and we've got to ensure that America remains America. David, what happened to that part of the country where you had a president who said, ask not what your country can do for you? I mean, what, what, what happened to that? Did, did it just die? Is, is it gone? You, you, you know, what a, a, we have to ensure that America remains America. Because yeah, it's been pushed down under we, that boot of progressivism, of false equity, rather than opportunity, education, advancement, yeah. your right to be who you are, whether you want to join the Corps, whether you want to become yeah. a licensed electrician, whether you want to yes. become a pastor, no matter what it is. We're being mm -hmm. put in boxes, and that's what we have to get out. we got to break out of these boxes. And when we do yeah, that we do. as a country, we'll get along with each other much better. Actually, we get along with each other much better than the left tells us. I think we do because, you know, we're not out there fighting in the streets. Um, well, not those of us who care about safety and security. You know, we my I have, you know, in my neighborhood, Latinos, Asians, black, white, and we get along just fine. But I, I listen to the talking heads on television and I'm thinking, my God, there should be riots every single day. You know, uh, there should be burnings and, and fleecings and whatever. But it's not that. And so I'm thinking the media is trying to gin us up because it serves their purposes for whatever those purposes are. But, you know, they either live in safe communities or they live in gated communities. And so they are not hurt. But did you see what in Chicago when those two Democratic uh, politicians, I think one was a congressperson, congresswoman, but they were both females, when their cars were hijacked, suddenly they understood. And I think, you know, unfortunately, I think that's what it's going to take for their children to be hurt, 
for, for their communities to be hurt, their homes, have, for them to be hurt, to understand what the rest of us are feeling based on these laws and regulations that they want us to live under. Until it, it hits home with them, they don't care. I don't think they care. I, they hope let it, people... I, don't, I hope they don't get hurt, but like you, but you're right. Until they face the reality they've created in the destruction yes. of so many of our communities, until they face the lies that they've done and given yeah. to the American people to prop this up, it, likely many will never change their minds. But I, I go back to this. At some point, we have to choose victory over defeat. Yes. We have to be victorious because if we win, we, the Republicans, the conservatives, the people get freedom and a reason and and an opportunity to choose. If the Democrats and the progressives, and I do remember those Democratic socialists and the prime ministers and Manley and Siaga, believe me, those names are, you know, emblazoned in my brain. Uh, If those people win then you get less freedom and less choice. We offer freedom and opportunity. They offer less freedom, less choice, and they will Mm -hmm. tell you that you're doing okay while your neighborhood falls apart. We can't accept that in America. Yeah, and I think what the COVID has taught us is that if we ever wondered what our government in America would do if we faced such a lockdown situation, we now know. We don't have to guess your home is going to be impacted because they're going to tell you when you can leave and when you can't. Uh, your businesses are impacted because they're going to decide which businesses will succeed and which ones won't because that's what they did. They decided what essential businesses were, even when they looked like mom and pop stores, that the big box stores uh, were the same thing. And they decided big box stores were more important than mom and pop because the COVID doesn't go to big box stores. And then they also decided about churches. They, they closed down our houses of worship, whether it's a temple or, uh, you know, a church, wherever you worship. When they shut the churches down, they decided how you would worship. They were going to dictate to you how you would worship. And, and we, have to, we have to say, no, 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 no. Once we uh, uh, ascertain what the threat is, then we open up and we open up accordingly, but we don't, we don't pick winners and losers. We don't do that. People committed suicide over COVID closings. Children committed. I know in Richmond, the, the, uh, um, the drug overdose rate tripled. Actually, it went to 150% because people weren't mingling with each other. And so they were worse self-medicating with these drugs, you see. So, no, we've got to not ever go down this road again. No, we absolutely cannot. And when you add to that uh, alcohol-related deaths during COVID, people were locked down, (laughs) easily available, so many things. But the lesson there, again, what government can do to you when government is in full control, like you said, when you can go, where where you can go. We cannot have that. And that's, again, I keep going back to we've got to win because when you win, you also do something else. And I know you have to do this in office, make policy. So we have to win, make good policy, provide the results, show the people of Virginia in your case. Actually, you're showing the nation. This, This is... 
this is why I wanted to have this conversation. I want people to meet you to get to know you a little bit better because they've seen the candidate, they've seen you in various forms, and as lieutenant governor, they're going to see you for a while. I, I think I tried to give you a promotion last time we talked, but we'll wait and see if you decide to to accept <laughs> that promotion. But it, it has been my pleasure uh, to do this, and someday we're going to sit down and we'll do part two, and we'll do it with some yeah. food. Well, that would be wonderful. But, you know, here we are as immigrants trying to tell America, thank you for letting us in. And thank you for giving us the opportunity, but don't destroy your country. You've got a, a great country. She may not be what she's supposed to be, but as we say in church, she ain't what she used to be. And I am proof of that. Uh, you know, I am here second in command of the former capital of the Confederacy. Imagine that. Praise God. We are not where we were when my father came in 63. But there are people who are now the new gatekeepers, and I see different water fountains now, and they're political water fountains. And these ones, they say, uh, picture this on the, there, there's the water fountain that says black only, and under it, it says Democrats only votes. And then there's another water fountain that says white, Hispanic, Asian, and you know what it says? You can vote for Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Green Party, Reform Party, everybody. Who made those rules for us? You see? So nobody's going to keep us in our place. We're tired of that. We're grown folks. We're going to make our own decisions. Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. 